I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. The task which has been set us is not above our strength, long as we have faith. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. God's work must truly be our own. Well, good morning. I'm excited that you just got to see snapshots of history's most pivotal moments, and now I get to talk to you. <laughs> My name is Nick Allen, and I am uh, the discipleship pastor here. Um, I told the folks at the first service that that was the first time that I had said that out loud on a stage before, and um, it's a little different. I have this summer um, will mark my ninth year of being on staff at Rolling Hills Community Church. Um, and in those nine years, I've had four different jobs and titles, um, which is an indicator that either, hmm, A, I'm kind of qualified for multiple things, or B, most likely, um, that the people in leadership over me just want to keep giving me shots to find the one that sticks. I'm okay with that, um, because what it's afforded me is the chance to stay um, really connected and involved in a local body. Um, people in my line of work have an average of 24 to 36 months before moving um, to a new church in a new location. And I can't tell you the gift that it's been to me and my family to be able to be plugged in and bought into one collective body for um, such a tenure. And, and we continue to treasure that. Um, on the flip side of it, I, I don't know that it's given you quite as much as it's given me. And so for that, I apologize. How many of you We'll just move on. How many of you um, like things to work like they're supposed to? Oh, the hands went up. Okay, great. I do too. And I feel like that's a good jumping off point for us today. I'll tell you a story. When Susan and I, my wife, were, um, we were sort of first married in the first couple of years, pre-kids, pre-moving to Tennessee. We lived in Charlotte, North Carolina. And one afternoon, we were driving north on I-85, um, the interstate through town, and going approximately 75 miles per hour, and her window in the passenger side began going down. And so I asked, knowing that she wasn't much into the windblown look, um, Susan, why are you rolling your window down? And she goes, I'm not, and then looked at the window, and it was going down by itself. And I said, grab it. And she starts trying to grab the window before it gets sucked into that crack where windows go when you roll them up and down. And she, we're clicking our buttons, you know, to make the automatic stuff work. And it's going, eh, 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 and the window is not going back up. It's literally just decreasing into, it's like, grab it, grab it, grab it. And she doesn't. It goes straight into the hole. So we piece together some trash bags and duct tape um, to make it work in an interim until we can pay someone several hundred dollars in order to fix it. Several weeks after that, we're driving that same stretch of cursed road up the interstate in Charlotte, North Carolina, I-85, again, going about 75 miles per hour. However, my speedometer told me that I was going zero miles per hour and that I was going zero rotations per minute and that I had, in fact, zero amount of gasoline in the tank, and that my temperature was also the lowest it had ever been in the history of that particular car, which tended to overheat, so I knew that that wasn't the case. I know, I feel as if we're moving pretty swiftly through the interstate, but my dashboard is no longer functioning. Like, dashboard, you have one job. Give me the information that I need. You have this one role, and now you're not doing it. Um, sometimes I'm inclined to wonder, 
if the God of this universe isn't staring at us like a dashboard on an interstate heading 75 miles per hour, who knows where, saying, church, you got one job. And in some ways, we, corporate we, church worldwide, uh, of believers in Jesus Christ who are bought and saved by him, I, I wonder if we get the, you're not working like you're supposed to. You're not functioning in the way that you were intended Enter this series, uh, Unstoppable, and I love the chance to get to teach as a part of it because it's A, named after one of my favorite books by Pastor Erwin McManus called Unstoppable Force, which is the movement of God's church through the world, but because also I love to be a part of a winning team. Who doesn't like to win? Whether it's a video game or a card game or a ball, whatever it is, we want to be winners. And we know that when we fast forward to the end of this book, that at the culmination of all of time and space, that there's going to be a belief in Jesus Christ that's going to prevail, that there will be victory that we just sang about. There will be victory that we get to read about. There will be victory that we're going to one day get to experience as a part of this church, this movement, this unstoppable force that God has ignited from the beginning of time, way back before the church started to the beginning of Genesis, when he set his relationship with people into view. It's been unstoppable. And no matter the threats and the outcomes of said threats, the church will prevail, and we get to be a part of that. So today we land on maybe the best part of the series, not because I get to teach it, but because it's literally the best part in the book of Acts, where the new church is formed. And we pick up today in your Bibles, if you have them, in Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 41, picking up where Jeff left off last week. Peter has just preached a sermon, basically 10 minutes, because you can read through it pretty fast, and communicated with people who previously thought that they were intoxicated because they began speaking other languages, but it was early in the day, and they were not, in fact, intoxicated. They were really just filled with the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised would come, and this happened. He preaches a message, and he tells them the Word of God, and they believed, And in verse 41, if you have your Bibles with you or you've tuned in on your mobile device or you want to check out the verses that are going on the screen, it says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We continue into verse 42 to find out what those new souls did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the start. This is the church, the first one, and provides for us today a model of growth and involvement, the bastion of purpose that we're supposed to incorporate into our church thousands of years later, still taking our cues from what these believers did. Well, we ask ourselves some key questions, say, who are they? And what exactly did they do? Why did they do it and why did it matter? Well, the Bible in just these few verses gives us some significant answers. So we explore this passage along with other passages in the New Testament today that give light to what was going on in this group of early believers. The first question is, who were they? And what made this group of people so important? You see, the turnover from Passover, that last supper that Jesus had with his disciples in an upper room on on the eve of his arrest and then ultimately his crucifixion, his death and his resurrection. The timeline between that moment and Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and fiery tongues got above every head and they started speaking crazy languages and made him appear intoxicated. The timeline between those moments is relatively short. 
So the gathered believers who heard Peter's message that day and who received the word that he brought, they're people who potentially had seen Jesus alive. We know that Jesus is alive today, but they had seen the physical pre-death Jesus. They're people who had potentially heard his teaching. They're, They're people who had potentially received his healing or knew someone who did. They're people who knew and witnessed the power and the miracles that he displayed. These are people who saw Jesus knew Jesus, possibly followed Jesus, were confused by Jesus, misunderstood Jesus, ultimately cried, crucify Jesus, and watched as he was pulled off a cross and laid in a tomb, rendered dead. These people were now being given a new message and a new hope that Christ was in fact alive. What made any of these people so significant? It was not who they were, and it was not what they experienced, but what they received. It says in verse 41, so those who received his word. And Peter's word to the people that day was basically, you're just all a bunch of dirty, rotten sinners who killed Jesus, the Son of God, and the only hope and Savior of the world. You need to repent of those sins and be baptized. They received that word. And if you're a person who likes to underline words in your Bible so that you can feel more spiritual than a person who doesn't underline because you want to remember later what it was that you underlined and why it was important, underline that word received. It's the Greek word apodekomai, and if we pronounce it correctly, it means we have to use something called the guttural, which sounds like you're going to spit when you say it. It's apodekomai, and what it really means is to accept as true. In the Greek language, it's the same word for welcome, because when you welcome someone into your home in this culture, you're welcoming them into your life. Receiving Peter's word meant receiving, welcoming the salvation of Jesus to come and reside in you. This group of Acts 2 people doing what the Acts 2 people did were people who had received salvation from Jesus. That meant they they believed the essential truth that he alone was the one and only son of God and the only way that our sins can be forgiven and our relationship with God can be restored. Have you received God's word? Have you believed in Jesus for? salvation. This group of people was just an ordinary group of people who believed in Jesus Christ. Billy Graham, um, a famous teacher, evangelist, (laughs) way better than any of us around here, I mean, come on, but he was once quoted as saying that a really high percentage of people that sit in our pews every Sunday morning are lost and without Christ. It's a good thing we don't have pews here. Um, (laughs) Do you truly know Jesus? It starts with recognizing that we ourselves have wronged Jesus and that we've lived lives that are an affront to Almighty God. Peter told the people that they were sinners. And the real beauty, the deeper beauty of this group of people who believed this word from Peter was that ultimately each and every one of them had at once been an enemy of God. This group of people was an ordinary group of people who believed in Jesus, and it was composed of the former enemies of Jesus. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Paul was just later confirming what Peter had already said in so many words, because in Acts 2.23, Peter said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Until forgiveness happens in our lives, we, you and I, we are the enemies of God. 
It doesn't matter if we're kind. It doesn't matter if we're educated. It doesn't matter if we're American. It's certainly regardless of whether or not we're Democrat or Republican. It doesn't matter if we attend temple or church or how often. It doesn't matter if we support charities or even start them. What matters is that the Holy Spirit of God has flicked us on the ear and whispered deep into the heart of our soul, you are a dirty, rotten sinner separated from Almighty God, but out of His goodness and infinite love for you, decided to send Christ to die in your place. It's only when we recognize our deep sin need that we understand the true gift of salvation. Then and only then can we apodekomai receive and welcome Jesus. And when we do, we're no longer the enemies of God. These former enemies had now become friends. They had become a part of his movement, a part of his promise that the church would prevail. Ordinary people just like us, who had at once been the enemies of God, now brought to life. That's who they were. Well, well what did they do? Acts 2.42 said they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to a list of things that we'll get to in a minute. But let's pause for a second and talk about what it meant for them to be devoting themselves. That word devoted is the Greek word proskartoreo. Proskartoreo, say that four times fast. The New American Standard Bible actually writes, and they continually devoted themselves, which makes it that much more interesting because you see the word for continual in the Greek New Testament is proskartoreo, and the Greek word for devoted is proskartoreo. It sounds the same because they are the same. And since I think that the people who translate God's word into other languages are super smart and really crazy cool, I think it's really interesting that the team of people who translated Greek to English in the New American Standard Bible, I imagine this team of geeks, because I don't think it's just this one single guy sitting up in a room with a dictionary and a typewriter. I'm sorry that I just called them geeks. That was kind of rude. Um, except that I kind of look at them the way that I look at my son Simon's pulmonologists. I don't need them to be... Um, I don't need them to be social butterflies. I'm kind of okay with them just being awkwardly intelligent, right? You know, you just, it's okay, right? They can just kind of sit back and do their smart people stuff, and that's all right. And I'm glad that they did that. I think it's really neat that they put proskar tereo, proskar tereo, back to back twice in English. Because to be continually devoted to something is like saying really, really hungry, emphasis on the really continually devoted. It's proskar tereo, proskar tereo, and, and I'm quite aware that I've not pronounced that word twice the same way or probably correctly at all. Here's the deal. For us to be devoted to something, we have to do it continually. This week, I went boxing for the first time, not to fight someone. I don't want you to say that or tweet that because that was not my aim. It was just a workout in Cool Springs, a really long workout in Cool Springs. I can't, I can't stand before you now and say, I'm a devoted boxer after having only done it once and honestly, not done it very well. I can't say that I'm committed to that. I can't say that I'm devoted to that. I can, however, say that I'm a devoted watcher of The Blacklist on NBC starring James Spader because I've seen every episode up to this point. Now, you may come to me and say, oh, Nick, I am too a devoted watcher of ABC's The Blacklist starring James Spader, and I'll say, what did you think about the episode on April 14th? And if you tell me that you haven't seen that episode on April 14th, I'll say, go home and watch it because you're not as devoted as me. And until you do, we can't talk because it was a pivotal episode. <laughs> to be devoted to something means that you are continually involved and continually invested and continually a part of what it is. And that's what the early church was doing. The writer of Acts goes on to explain that they were, what it was that they were devoted to, 
what it was that they were doing, regardless of the effort and regardless of the threat, regardless of what it took to be devoted to it. He says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's being devoted to God's word. Luke goes on to say that they were filled with awe and wonder at the signs that the apostles were doing, but it doesn't say that they were devoted with awe and wonder to the signs the apostles were doing. They were devoted to the word that they were teaching. Now, I find that really interesting, that the apostles were doing crazy, uh, unbelievable, awe-inspiring works. Jesus explained it like this in John chapter 14, that you will do the works that I do, and what's more, you will do even greater works than these. I think that's crazy, because we know that Jesus healed the sick that Jesus multiplied provision, that Jesus controlled seas and storms, and that Jesus raised the dead. I can't even make up in my mind what kind of works these guys were doing that would be grander than that. Oh, wait. 3,000 people just moved from death to life. 3,000 people just moved from darkness to light. Of course I can imagine greater works than these. Someone who was once an enemy of God, now being called a child of God? Of course I can imagine what those wonders are. And also the power of the Christ they represented. A Christ that could be best understood through the reading and the hearing and the understanding of his word. And that's why the people were devoted to it. What does it mean for you and I to be devoted to the word? Well, does it mean that you keep it? In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon blessed the people of Israel gathered around the newly constructed temple, and he admonished them to be devoted to God by keeping his word. And then sadly, three chapters later, Solomon had abandoned those very words and turned his heart away from God. What does it mean to be devoted to the word, that you hide it in your heart, like Psalm 19 says, so that we might not sin against him? Sure. What does it mean to be devoted to a word that we crave it, that we literally hunger and thirst for it like pure spiritual milk so that our souls may be nourished? Sure. What does it mean that we prioritize it in our lives, that it takes precedent over other words and that we understand what it means for daily living? In this case, being devoted to the word of God, being devoted to the apostles' teaching meant that they were devoted to the message. The Protestant reformers believe that we receive God's word in two ways, law and gospel. The law tells us what God demands, but the gospel tells us what God has done. The gospel is Jesus Christ crucified for sin. And to be devoted to the apostles' teaching meant being devoted to the truth about Jesus, the way that they were expelling. And here's the deal. It's easier for us to be devoted to the truth that they were teaching than for those early believers. Oh, because they had the Roman government and the chief priests oppressing them. Well, maybe. I I firmly believe that that will one day be true in our lives as well that we'll have the oppression of the populace if we don't already, beating down on what it means to be a Christian, and our very confession of faith will be threatened in this life. So, so maybe that's not a way that we have it easier than they did. Oh, because we have technology, which helps us communicate the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world in a matter of 30 minutes when Paul couldn't take a day trip, our equivalent of Murfreesboro, without being shipwrecked and abandoned on an island and arrested. I mean, that was pretty hard, right? The technology that we have today enables us to go literally further than Paul could have ever traveled in an entire lifetime in a matter of a day. We can be on the other side of the planet communicating the gospel to someone and receiving a word about So sure, technology makes it a little bit easier today. I don't know. How about this? Just the fact that we have the full access to God's word. These are a people who, although it was assembled, likely did not have their own copy of the Old Testament scriptures to refer to. And the New Testament 
was just being started. They didn't have that either. All they had was the teaching of some unschooled men to communicate to them the gospel message of Jesus Christ so that they could continue to communicate that to others, and they followed it. We have it because of this and because of our unlimited access to this. We have it at least simpler than they did. Where's your Bible? If it's on your phone, you have it with you at all times probably. If it's not, where is your copy of the Word of God? In your home? A well-worn copy on your bedside? It's in your office, on your coffee table, in your kitchen? Where is God's Word in your life, and what do you do with it? Are you devoted to both His laws for living, and also the message of His Son Jesus dying so that you wouldn't have to? We can take that as a marker for faith in this generation, just like it was in the last, that we should be devoted to the teaching of God's word. What else? The Bible says that they were devoted to fellowship, to each other. It says in chapter 2, verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Common here is the Greek word koinos, and it's where we understand the word koinonia to come from. And in practical purposes, it literally means what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine. We get a deeper understanding of what that actually looked like if you go down to Acts 4 where it's being played out. Because in Acts chapter 4, it says that there were people in their community, poor people who had specific needs, and those who owned land and property would sell that land and property and bring the gifts into the church so that the apostles could distribute it to others. It actually gives the story of one specific guy, a guy named Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, because of course that makes sense. We've got William, we call him Bill, we've got Henry, we call him Hank. Why wouldn't we have a guy named Joe, and instead of Joseph or Joey, we call him Barnabas? I have no idea how that makes sense, but it did. And they call him the son of encouragement, because he had a field, and he sold it, and he brought the proceeds to the apostles so they could distribute to other people as they had need. How devoted are you to the people that are sitting around you? Devoted enough to downsize? This version of koinonia living is only possible if you don't live to the end of your means, but if you leave some margin. The concept harkens back to the book of Leviticus, where from the very beginning, God was sculpting out a people for himself, and he told the farmers, don't harvest to the edges of your fields, but leave it, so that poor people, sojourners, travelers, people who had no land, could come and farm the edges because we're a generous people, because we're a people who leave room on the outside for others. So I don't know what this means for us in terms of creating margin in our incomes. And in moments when we determine that margin isn't big enough, then we go sell something so that we have more margin. I don't know what qualifies to that level of devotion today. Maybe it's taking a meal to someone when they have a baby or a surgery. Well, that happened for us here because our babies were surgeries, cesarean sections, and all of a sudden, people from Rolling Hills were bringing us, I mean, y'all, some of the best food. Y'all brought some incredible meals when our babies were born. Like, so good, it makes you want to go back and have another baby, just so you could get that food again. Like, is that devotion? Maybe. Is it opening up your home to let someone live there who needs a place to stay? That happened for us, too. Um, because when we moved here, a lady in the church opened up her home because we needed a place to stay while we were making a transition from Florida to Tennessee, and we lived there for a while. This wasn't a roof over our head for one night. Try six weeks. It was a big deal. 
Or maybe it's when someone, you provide transportation, their car breaks down, so you drive them to work every day for three months, because that happened for me too, an engine blew. We couldn't afford to replace it right away, so I hitched a ride. Oh, and when you order a brand new slash used engine to go in that car, and paying for that was enough, you couldn't actually afford to have someone put it in for you. Somebody in the church says, hey, my granddad's got a garage, and you can come over, and for three days and nights, I'll take off work and put it in for you free of charge, because that happened for us too. I don't know what this type of in common means, but I think for us to live in this type of koinonia, it has to be from some uncommon levels of giving and some uncommon levels of margin in our lives where we are helping others. I think true devotion to sharing what we have in common starts with the axiom, I don't know what that kind of devotion is, but I'll know it when I see it. And I'm honored to say that I've seen it here, and, and I hope we continue to see it here because I want us as a church to be like this church. What else were they devoted to? Well, they were devoted to worship. The Bible calls that breaking of bread. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Breaking bread could literally just be eating a meal and thanking God for it. But when you ate with people, you were associated with them. It indicated not just friendship, but a deep level of companionship. It's like when you were in high school and you were walking around and you were texting some girl. Forget it, we didn't have texts in high school. We actually had to talk to people. It's like when you're in high school and you're walking down the hall talking to some girl and your boys saw you. They were like, they assumed something was now going on. And you could get mad at them for assuming that something was going on because they're just jumping to conclusions and you were talking about, hey, in this, in this context, there was no jumping to conclusion. It was the conclusion. If you were eating with someone, if you were spending time with someone, it indicated a deep personal relationship. And if you were going to temple with them, it indicated even more. Breaking of bread could have been the Eucharist. Communion, also from Koinos Koinonia. But when they shared that communion together, they were saying, we believe the same thing. We believe in Jesus together. We hold him as the one and only son of God, former enemies of his, now being made friends of his because of the forgiveness that we've received. We share that in common. And so we're gonna worship together, telling the story of what God has done for us in Jesus with a glad and generous attitude. Glad and generous are synonymous with the idea of being grateful. And you know, sometimes I think about the postures that we bring to worship, whether it's hands raised in the air or faces bowed down, regardless of what the posture is, the attitude of heart ought to be one of gratitude because it's out of thankfulness that we tell God who he is and what he's done for us. And the deal here, the part that I can't wrap my mind around is that they did it daily. When in our culture and context, average church participation across this country is two out of every five Sundays, these folks gathered daily. What does it mean to be devoted to worship? To be devoted to worshiping God means being devoted to gathering with the people of God. It means that it holds a level of high priority in our lives that it's not easily trumped by the boardrooms and the ball games of this life, and that our kids will be raised knowing how much we value this gathering together of ourselves 
The writer of Hebrews warned us about forsaking it. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Maintaining our level of good works and holding on to our deep confession of faith in Jesus Christ is essential. And the way we do that is by having direct proximity to a local body of believers. You guys know, many of you do, that our son Simon has cystic fibrosis. That's why we talk about those pulmonologists at Vanderbilt. We think they're wonderful. Well, Simon is a pitiful representation of what the damaging effects of cystic fibrosis can do on a kid because he is unbelievably healthy. If he's the only person that you know with cystic fibrosis, then you don't know what the disease is because he's a really, really healthy kid, and we thank God for that. We learned early on in his diagnosis that a person's ability to thrive with this disease is in direct relationship to their proximity to a clinic. Only 30,000 people in the United States have it, so naturally, there's not a clinic in every city. There's not even a clinic in every state. And so we're burdened by the families who have to drive hours, even days, even taking long flights to get their kids the kind of care that they need. And we're 30 to 45 minutes, bad traffic included, from Vanderbilt, one of the leading ones in the country. It's a blessing. Our ability to care for our son is in direct relationship to our proximity to a clinic that can help. Huh. My ability to grow as a believer and be spurred on to do the good works that God prepared in advance for me to do is in direct relationship to my proximity and my devotion to a local body of believers who will hold me up in that. This group of people knew that they needed one another and they knew that they needed to maintain that devotion. Their final level of devotion was to that of prayer. Prayer is simply recognizing all that God is, and all who he is in our lives. It says at the end of that passage, Acts 2, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's a recognition that it was God who gives growth. Paul wrote about it later in 1 Corinthians. He said, I will plant, Apollos can water, but it's God who gives growth. It was the Lord who added that 3,000, and it was the Lord who continued to increase that church day by day by day by day, because regardless of what their level of devotion was, they could not grow. They could not grow. They could not lead the church on their own. It was God inspiring that level of growth, and their prayer was nothing more than a recognition that he is God and that they were not. And so they remained devoted to that concept. They remained devoted to that principle. They remained devoted to that practice of prayer because God was God. Should we, as a final question, understand ourselves as a church required to maintain those four devotions to God's word, to the fellowship of the believers and the generosity that we have things in common together, through the worship practices that we have and ultimately to prayer? Should we maintain those devotions? Yes. How so? It starts with remaining devoted to the mission and staying connected to one another. Why? Because it fuels our growth. We need each other. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, all five of them, 
to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So for me, to mature to manhood, the measure and the full stature of Christ, to maintain unity of faith and the knowledge of his Son, to go back to Hebrews and continue to do good works that God had prepared in advance for me to do, and to be spurred on to continue in the love that I've received from Jesus Christ. In order to do all of that, I need an apostle in my life, I need a prophet in my life, I need an evangelist, a shepherd and a teacher. If you go to Paul's other writings, we need servants, we need administrators, we need leaders, we need people with the gift of mercy, we need people who can lead. And none of us are all of those things rolled up into one. So in order for me to grow, I need you. And for order you to grow, you need me. For order... In order for any of us to be the people that God has created us to be and called us to be in Christ, we need the we. And it's only going to happen if we stay connected and remain devoted to this mission and to one another. It fuels our growth. It also furthers the movement, which continued far beyond Acts chapter 2. Verse 41 and verse 47 serve as these really parallel bookends. In verse 41, they got 3,000 new believers, and in verse 47, every single day they got a new believer. It goes on to say in Acts chapter 6 that the Lord continued to add to their number. The increase was happening, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in the city of Jerusalem. I got to admit, this is like a pastoral confession. I am so much more at times fascinated with the big event where 3,000 people turned from dead into life than I am the daily discipled increase. We don't have to be a people who live in the 3,000 moment. What we do have to be, church, is a people who live by the daily increase moment where every single day because of your testimony and because of mine and because of your faith and because of mine and in direct proportion to the level of devotion that we give this local church, we see a day by day, person by person, life by life increase. That God would continue to increase the number of disciples that are a part of our local body. How's it gonna happen? It's going to happen because you and I are going to come to the Holy Spirit of God with a sense of expectancy. He can save 3,000 in an afternoon and he can add to our number every single day. What can the Holy Spirit of God do with our devotion? What can he do if we'll all just do our one job? Our one job? Increase, grow, multiply, gather. Be a church full of movement, of people coming in and finding favor with God because of the blood of Jesus and the testimony that we share of our faith in Him. We got one job, church. How devoted are we going to be to it? If we remain devoted to His Word and devoted to this fellowship and devoted to worship and prayer, we will see the kind of increase that this Acts 2 church saw and we'll be filled with awe and we'll be filled with wonder saying, how in the world is God doing all that here? Because of it.
Will you pray with me? God, we are blown away by what you did in Acts chapter 2, the church that you established and the church that you grew. And Father, we ask that you would do that in us, that you would take our levels of devotion, that you would multiply them in us, that you would make us a more deeply connected to one another and committed people, desiring nothing more than your increase here. Jesus, we know for that to take place that collectively we have to agree that we're devoted to Christ. But that, God, we also must be individually committed to you. So my prayer today for these friends of mine in the room is that you would inspire in us a new level of devotion and a new level of commitment to Jesus. And that, God, we would see a powerful increase here because of it. Folks, men and women in this room who are designated as A6 leaders in our church are gonna be moving to the sides of the auditorium. Why? Because we're committed to prayer. And we're devoted to the idea that when we gather together and pray with one another and for one another, that the Holy Spirit of God does something that only the Holy Spirit of God can do. So A6 men and women, I invite you to move to the sides of the auditorium. And for the rest of us, I invite you to continue to respond to the word of God in Acts chapter two, asking him today, What level of devotion do you want to bring in my life, God? And what is the next step of faith that I can take in you to be more committed and more connected to Christ and his church? We want to be a devoted people, Jesus. Would you make it so? If there's something today that you want to pray about or you would like to have prayer for, if you're a person in the room who's saying, I'm still an enemy of God because I have not come to faith in Jesus Christ and I just want to talk to someone about what that means, then please, by all means, get up and move. We're not going to respond to God today only in a private worship. We're going to respond to him today in a corporate, collective, unified, committed response. So I invite you this morning to stand as we sing and as we pray and as we respond to the word of God that he has given to us today. Father, would you move? Would you move in our hearts and in our lives and move us out of this space as a people who are more committed to Jesus? It's in his name that we pray and ask these things. Amen.